hundred meters. You know, they're they're playing a completely different sport. <clears throat> but if you think about me running five k's around the zone here, and these were my times for fourteen of these, and I can hand on heart guarantee you that I do not do any training. So my time sits around about a, a wholly unimpressive twenty seven minutes for five k's. <laughs> But depending on beers or whatever else, it might be as bad as 31-something or on with wind blowing up my clacker, it might be less than 25 <laughs> minutes or something like that. So the amount of noise just from test to test on me is huge. So if you were saying we're going to do some treatment effect on me, maybe do a training program or something like that, and it's going to improve my time by 1%, let's say, no, let's say 10%. So in my case, you know, twenty, let's say 30 minutes, three minutes, I'd have to say that's still, you know, kind of in the realms of noise. 1%, just forget about it. But 1% for these guys, you know, 10% would be one second, 1% would be 0.1. So changing by 0.1, you know, you're going to be shifting in essence in the order of, well, what's that going to be? That's at least a couple of Olympic cycles. So 1% change for these guys is a massive effect and they'd probably be willing to undergo some sort of training program or something that did an effect like that. 1% effect for me, it's going to take an awful lot of convincing before I'd be thinking of that, you know, this is a realistic thing for me to, to be able to do. Another example that comes up in our case a lot. Oh, did you hear that sound? Yeah. What was it? Right. That was um, Jesse Owens up to Usain Bolt. Let's do it again. So that's as if you'd ran all of the Olympic winners from Jesse Owens to Usain Bolt. The first one crossing the, the finish line is Usain Bolt. The last one is Jesse Owens. Here's how big the difference is. That's it. So that's from 1936 to 2012. That's the difference we're talking. So that's when I was saying, you know, you need to think of the effect size in terms that it matters to the person that you're doing this to. So for those guys, a half a percent is probably a big deal. For this palooka, we're going to need to think about a 20% improvement before you'd say it actually matters. Um, yeah, so that, that was that example before. This is my last one because this one... Um, all right, so I've got these uh, twin robots that I keep hostage in my basement and it just so turns out that when they do a single leg squat, the amount of knee valgus that they do is exactly the difference which is very statistically significant between left and right of volleyball players or very statistically significant between volleyball and bas basketball players with the amount of knee valgus that's going on. Now, I've made it a lot easier for you because these studies were done with people jumping off a box and landing on the ground. These guys are synchronized and just doing a slow single leg squat. So just um, for beers now, which one of these guys has more knee valgus? Because remember, it's this is P of 0.01. So the difference between the two of these is in the order of about, three, in fact, it's three and a half degrees. So which one of those guys is doing the three and a half degrees more knee valgus, which is highly statistically significant? 
Jesus, I don't know. Left. I'm, going, go, I'm going left. Craig, you go right. Yeah, I'll go left. I, I, well, I think the point of the exercise is I can't really tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we can't see that. I don't know that Vicon can actually measure that. Um, and I certainly can't see it. I can definitely not see it with the naked eye. So, you know, putting it back in the context of, well, how am I going to do this in the clinic? So the next time you read a paper that says, you know, there was a significant increase in knee valgus or a significant increase in knee valgus was associated with patellofemoral pain or whatever the case may be, go and find out what the numbers are and then, you know, do you reckon I could see that? Can I influence that? Can I change that? how much these guys are robots, so they're able to reproduce that every time you get your patients to do a squat 10 times. Do you reckon they're going to be able to do it exactly the same every time? Yeah. Um, <coughs> Rod, you, we had a few other things on the list that you've touched on where I want to come back to because you, we've talked about a bit about p-values there and you've already yep. touched on... Um, you know, that they're not magical. And one of your the videos that I watched on YouTube a while ago was, was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek entitled how you can use a p-value to make it say whatever you want about your research, which, uh, which I thought was great. Yeah. And I, I was reading the Sander Greenland paper um, on how statistical tests are misinterpreted, whether it be sample size, power, p-values. Maybe we'll talk about all of these, but can we start on p-values? Where, where are we at with p-values? Because I read that some... Some journals are rejecting papers now that uh, include p-values. Um. Yep. Yeah, so there's a bit of a push, and I get it because they've been just really badly used, really badly interpreted, but the idea that they're tossing people out who are just doing p-values, I think that's gone too far the other way. Um, look, and this this is our fault again because – the answer almost always is it depends. You know, does low-level laser therapy beat, um, what was it, Craig? Saline um, dressings. <laughs> saline dressings. You know, well, it depends. <laughs> so what patients, you know, how big an effect size, how many people did they have, were, what, what's the deal with all those different ones? But that's a wholly unsatisfying answer. And what the person reading the paper wants to know is just tell me, mate, yes or no. And that's p-values came out of... Um, a, a push to try and get that yes or no answer. Um, and there's, and you know, to cut a long story short here, we are not going to solve the p-value discussion here right now, but if people listening to this at least take out of this that the p-value does not mean that this treatment was better than that treatment, that this had a big effect, that this had anything else, we're ahead of the game by a long way. Um, so if you were to go back and at least look at the numbers, then we could start to interpret the p-value. The, there's a couple of the couple of issues around p-values that maybe it's worth taking a crack at. So if, if you get lost in this next little bit, don't worry, you're not Robinson Crusoe in that regard. Um, but yeah, anyway, let's have a crack at it and see how we go. So th this bloke, Reverend Thomas Bayes, came up with this idea of conditional probabilities. And conditional probabilities are actually how you spend your whole day you know this this is what we intuitively do um, but one of the dramas around p-values is it's based on something called a conditional probability um, conditional probabilities are really complicated that's actually a conditional probability and it's a proof that one plus one equals two but the guts of this is that we need to know the difference between a probability and a conditional probability and that's kind of the um the jargon for it 
P given A is a probability, but P of A given B, that's a conditional probability. What the hell do you mean by that? Right, so let's take a couple of examples. The probability that some randomly chosen person lives in Qatar is actually very low because there's not many people who live here in the whole world. That's not equal to the probability that someone lives in Qatar and they also work at Aspatar. Basically, almost everybody who works at Aspatar also lives in Qatar. We've got a few people who fly in and out. Now, this is the bit that takes a little while to get your, um, your head around. That's not the same as the probability of people who live in Qatar. So, um, Craig, in your case, let's say, well, up until recently, probability that somebody lives in Melbourne and works at La Trobe is not the same as somebody that works at La Trobe lives in Melbourne. Now, the key part is you can't, there's nothing you can do that lets you take this number and figure out that number. Those things are completely independent. Just store that one away for a second. So probability that there's a difference given that there was no difference. This was what we were talking about before with that whole, what the null hypothesis is based on. That tells us nothing about the probability that there's a difference given that there is a difference or this is where we usually live. I want you to tell me that there's a probability that that difference we saw is real given that I don't know if there's a difference in there or not and we can't get in between it. So the example that I like for this is I'm always losing my locker keys. The main spots my locker keys could be, they should be living in my backpack. Occasionally I leave them in my locker and you know go about my day. They might have been left on my bedside table. They could be somewhere else. <clears throat> so the biggest probability, if I know nothing else is, they should be living there in my backpack. Maybe I left them in my locker lap. Maybe I left them on my bedside table. Some new information comes up. I've just went and had a look in my backpack and they're not there. So the probability that my keys are in my backpack, given that I've just had a look and they're not there, has to now become very low. Maybe I had a boy's look, but chances are it's in one of these other spots now. So that shifts the probabilities, you know. But there was no way for us to get from A to B without finding out that new information. So long way to get around you, when some new paper comes out that says low-level laser therapy is actually really good at wound healing, you've then got to first of all say, hang on a second, how likely was that before I knew anything else? Do you think that was very likely, very unlikely, or more or less an even bet? Because the p-value is actually a conditional probability. So if you think it's a long shot that laser therapy actually makes a difference, and you're saying, look, I reckon there's 19 chances out of 20 that does not work, and the p-value comes out as 0.05 or 0.01, your 5 percent's gone up to 11 or your 5 percent has gone up to 30. And what people usually say or think at least when they say, you know, significant effect for laser therapy on uh, whatever it was, diabetic ulcers, oh, that's it, it's real. Well, now hang on a second, mate. If you thought this was unlikely to start off with, I still now reckon it's nine chances out of 10 it's not, or at least seven chances out of 10 it's not. If you thought it was 50-50 to start off with and you do the same thing, well, now we're up to, we went from even money up to 70% or 90%. And if you think, look, this, this one's probably right, you know, whatever is a good treatment for diabetic ulcers, I reckon it's nine chances out of 10 it's right. And our p-values come out. Well, we've gone from 90% up to 96 or 99, depending on what our p-value is. 
So that's the mistake mostly that people make is that they stop back here with p-value and they think, oh, well, that means that there's a 95% chance. And it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing that happens with um, inductive reasoning that I'm probably going to leave it there because everybody's going to be dropping off this straight away. <laughs> but do not take it that p equals 0.05 means that there's 95% chance that the thing you saw is real. You have to be able to say, and this is why clinicians have to be front and centre, so before I read this paper, I thought this thing was very likely, very unlikely, or, you know, whatever else the case may be. This new information came about. Now this is how far it shifts my thinking. But it has to shift your thinking. Look, I really didn't think that that thing was going to work. P-value said that. So I've gone from this almost certainly doesn't work to this probably doesn't work. Okay, now I'm waiting for the next paper to come out. Mm. Perfect. Um, com confidence intervals, Rod. Someone messaged yep. me and sort of they were they wanted a bit of clarification on those and and what not just what they mean, but how would they guide someone's thought processes when they're reading about them and they're trying to sort of infer something from them. Yep. Um, confidence intervals are a much better step in terms of um, reading papers. So the co the confidence interval is kind of like the best estimate for what this group should be. And so typically we'll take that as uh, usually it's, let's say it's normally distributed so we can take the average. So we've got a whole bunch of men and we took their height. And so we'll do we, you know, list everybody's height. No, no, we'll just take the group average. But then the confidence interval says, look, this is, if I was to randomly pick a bloke out of that sample that you had, he would be this tall from here to here. And that's your 95% confidence interval. So um, uh, actually a better example for this uh, might be, here we go. Let's again bring this across. So if you're, if people are interested in this stuff, um, go over to this, this website here. Can you see up in the top there, the URL? Um, our psychologist, actually, can I send that to you blokes as a message? Yeah. Yeah, in the uh, chat, well, you'll see the, the bottom of your screen, you'll see the chat, and I can link to it. Uh, righto. Sorry, mate, I can't see that. Oh, hang on, here we go, chat. There you go. So I'm just going to send a link to there. Yep. So this bloke, um, I reckon, has done an awesome job, Christopher Magnuson, of giving a whole bunch of um, visual descriptions of different things. So this thing that I'm about to play now, so let's say that we'll take a um, uh, we'll take a ninety five percent confidence interval. So this is we're ninety five percent sure of how tall um, this person's going to be. He's just taken the sample mean as being zero here, but you'll get the idea. Uh, and let's play this. And now he's going to run the experiment a whole bunch of different times. Now we'll speed things up a little bit here. Whoops, slow down just a uh, good. Right there you go. So. These are individual experiments where we went out into the street, we grabbed a whole bunch of men and they were about that tall, but that's their 95% confidence interval, this tall, this tall, this tall, this tall, this tall. This true population, by the way, has a sample mean of zero. So if we were to sample absolutely everybody, on average, they're zero. But in this little sample that they got here, they got one time, they went out and did it, and another time just here where the 95% confidence interval didn't cross the sample mean. So... We've ran 149 studies and it only missed by two times. So we've actually got 
um, in this case, we're doing a little bit better than what 95% should be. But over the long run, 19 times out of 20, that 95% confidence interval is going to include the sample mean. But you'll see a lot of these dots are to the left or right, and very few of them are exactly on the center there. So just when you're reading average and 95% confidence interval, just bear in mind that this is what you're actually seeing underlying that. So this is the sampling distribution that they're looking at. This is how many guys are. Mostly they're clustered over the center here, but you know some of them are spread down there. And if by accident you just happen to have chosen a whole bunch of blokes up from the right-hand end or from the left-hand end, your dot and that sample width like there. Oh, look at that. That's a good one. So here we go. This is so one, two, three, four, five, six. So let's say we were really unlucky and we just ran six of these experiments. We know that the real answer is it should sit in here somewhere. But out of those six experiments, two say it's less than, one says it's more, and only three says it's on there. So if we were to not do replication studies, we might get a really biased opinion of you know, the height of men when you're walking around the streets here in Doha. But if you do these studies for a long enough period of time, look at that one. Two standard deviations south, nowhere near crossing. So, but, but so that's the guts of an ICI. A large part of the problem, Rod, is that there's, there's no mileage in doing a replication study. Absolutely. And this, this is a, an annoying bit um, because, and again, this is why I want to get clinicians into research because clinicians don't really care if they publish a paper or not. You know, it's nice to do and all the rest of it, but their job doesn't live or die by it. Their job lives or dies by treating people with sore feet or whatever it is you bludgers do. <laughs> but mm. the person who lives in a university, this is, and now this, I'm going to annoy some people here, but if you work in a university, you only get a promotion if you get papers published or you bring funding in. And basically you bring funding in by getting lots of papers published. And so it's not in your interest to not be out there and doing lots more papers. Well, how do I get my papers published? So to get into the sexy journals, you need to find something exciting because nobody publishes a study, unfortunately, they should, but nobody publishes a study which says, yeah, these blokes found the same thing that everybody else found. But that kind of study says, actually, you know, we can now start to trust this finding. What they want to hear is this is the sexy, exciting new thing that we have. And so what that leads to, uh, let me just see if I've got this here somewhere, is this thing called publication bias. Uh, apologies for the delay here. Where... Because they, um, because it's only the sexy, exciting things that get published, all of the things that actually don't matter to... Oh, sorry, all of those replication studies end up not getting uh, into the different journals. So when you pull all of those papers together, all of the ones that came out on the negative side, you know, which might well be an important part of what's going on, they don't get published. Uh, apologies, I... Oh, here we go. Let's just try this one. Uh, so that's Ioannidis. So, yeah, it's good. Here's an acupuncture example again. Um, so this thing's uh, called a funnel plot. And the guts of a funnel plot is how it should work is on the y-axis is some measure of study quality. So for better or worse, one measure of study quality is how many people you have in your sample. When you've got hardly any people in your sample, 
uh, what should be uh, what happens is exactly like we were doing on that thing there, the confidence interval is going to be wider and wider. So you might be over here on the left side, you might be on the right side. If we were doing these trials fair income and publishing everything else, everything that was out there, we'd have an equal number of studies over to the left-hand side and to the right-hand side of where the real effect is. And it turns out that the real effect for acupuncture is essentially zero. But you can see there's a big bite taken out of the left side of this graph. And the reason for that is because all of these negative studies, they're pretty hard to get published to come out and say, we did a big randomized trial into some treatment and it didn't show anything. Well, that's not very exciting. Journal editors don't get happy about that. You won't get any funding doing that kind of stuff from big needles. And so that stuff doesn't get published. Yeah, that's how it should look. Yeah. Actually, I'll just, I'll just stop your share, screen share and share mine. Um, I don't know whether you followed this story. This was a um, editorial in Nature, um, go forth yes. and replicate, you know, et cetera, Absolutely. et cetera. So, so Nature were advocating it. But I don't know whether you followed this website, um, Retraction Watch, and there's yep. a, a two, really good two-part story of someone trying to get a replication study published in Nature. <laughs> you know, it didn't yeah. work. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, yeah, it's quite Do fascinating it. to follow it. <laughs> Yeah, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. But look, the the journals are a business as well. You know, they are in it absolutely to make money. And if the people consuming the journals, you know, which is basically us, start to say that, oh, look, these journals just keep publishing stuff that says stuff we already know, mm. that's actually a good thing because we could actually be confident of that stuff mm. or it might start to toss out some of the rubbish where, you know, well, maybe that's not such a real finding after all, but yeah. you know, if it bleeds, it leads. Sure. Uh, Rod, one thing I definitely want to get your take on is the concept of uh, the power of a study and particularly it's sample size. Cause what we see a lot, if someone uh, sees a study that's been published and the, the conclusion resonates well with them and fits their bias is that they'll often use how many, how many people are in a study, uh, purely sample size, to either say, yeah, this is this is good, we can trust this because it has 200 people in it, or if it's a yep. study they don't like the don't like the conclusion of, they can say, well, there was only five people in it. So could you yep. could you give us uh, your overview of, of sample size and and power? Yep, yep. So you're right that um, let's share again. So uh, just we'll go back to our 95% confidence interval, and this one was being ran with a sample size of 10. Um, so you watch the effect as we let's bump this up to. Oh, hang on a second. Did I just crash that screen? Uh, I'm just going to kill that conditional probability one, and we'll get this guy to refresh here. Um, so as sample size goes up, you're getting a, a, a truer and truer estimation of what the real um, sample mean should be. Uh, that one looks like it may have died. Oops, that was your paper. Let's just pop this on here. <clears throat> yeah, don't know what happened there. All right, so... Here we've got a sample size of five, exactly the same thing we were talking about before. And you can see now the lines are wider and wider. As we make the sample size get bigger and bigger, and in fact, let's, for the sake of speeding things up, we'll jump up to a sample size of 50. And you'll see now that the lines either side are starting to get smaller and smaller than they were up to the top there. Or if we jump up to 90, whoops. Now we're going to get 
smaller lines again and that are going to be clustering closer and closer to the true mean. So, yep, definitely one of the things um, that you should be looking for is that the bigger that the sample size is, the more you can trust that group estimator. So, you know, the group average, whatever it was that they were looking at, because the noise either side of it, the 95% confidence interval is going to be closer to that real number than when we only had five people in the study. So now those lines go wider and wider. So what's that actually mean for you? <clears throat> so remember we talked about having those two, um, those two populations. Uh, so the null hypothesis says that there's no difference. And so we've got one population here that's centered around a zero difference. And we've done some intervention. And these guys are 0.2 standard deviations north of that. If we wanted to look at the effect of changing the power on this, if we drop from 196 people down to, let's say, only 14. We'll reset the zoom. We can now see that those populations overlap an awful lot more. So even though we say that on average this group is 0.2 standard deviations north of this group, now there's an awful lot of guys who are inside this that are to the left of the guys who are inside our null hypothesis group. Um, and so that says in this case, because of the difference in the overlap out here, you've only got 12% power to, to detect an effect size. Long story short, as you up your numbers, this amount, which is the power, which is the bit north of the group mean differences, starts to get larger and larger. Now I've got 50% power by having... Um, sample size of 96 with an effect size of 0.2. So one of the things people should take home from that is sample size is going to give you a truer estimate of what's going on. Um, but if, you're if it turns out that your effect size is big, so we'll drop back down now here to 20. And let's say we have something that's actually got a really big effect. So we're going to see one standard deviation difference from time A to time B. Even though we've only got 20, now we've got power of 99%. So it's both the sample size and it's the size of the difference. And in my caper, that's why I'm saying, look, thing one, let's look for how big the difference is. Because yeah. if the difference is small, stop there. Yeah. Right. So that's your, your D is one place to start, how many standard deviations. But then you have to go and say right now, does that actually matter for my patients? Because if it doesn't, you know, if your effect size is down here around in the sports science caper at the moment, they're saying, you know, we're chasing the 0 0.2 because an effect size of 0 0.2, that's what really matters. Well, sports science, you've often got sample sizes of about 8 or 10 per group. And that's why sports science stuff and a lot of our stuff, to be fair, is wildly underpowered. You've only got a 9% chance of detecting an effect there. Yeah, sure. That that last point is really really good, Rod. Because you often, and especially in social media, you'll see people um, don't like the results of a study, so they'll say, "Oh, the sample size is too small," or someone might like the results of a study and they don't care that it's only a small sample. And I keep saying, "I oh, the, the sample size is not something I actually put a lot of emphasis on." <laughs> you can go straight for the effect size and look at the sample size later. I mean, it's the it, yeah. it, people's worldviews seem to influence the of what they think of the. Um, sample size because it may or may not support their belief system and that's a problem. 
Yeah, fully agree. You know, everyone, uh, we love to um, to share our biases. Uh, I'll just add this one in here. So this is this guy, David Colhoun, who's made this false positive risk calculator, which is, I think, um, a, a nice way to go. So one of the ways that what he's saying is, and because most of us can do this, usually the paper will give you the p-value, um, and then what you might want to be able to do or sorry, what we should be doing is saying, look, given a p-value and what was your prior belief in how real this thing might be? So we see a p-value of 0.05, let's say. Um, do you by any chance remember the numbers in that um, that diabetic foot ulcer oh, study? No, I can't, sorry. No, no, right. no, it doesn't matter. Let's say there were, let's say there were 16 um, in each sample and say it was a moderate effect size. It's 0.5 standard deviations. And we have to now pick a prior for how likely we think that this is a real effect. Now, this is the, the bit that's hard, but it's actually fair. And everyone goes, oh, you can't, how are you going to choose your priors? You're just making that shit up. And that's right, but this is what we do every day. And this is my strategy for doing it. So your possibilities can go from zero to 100%. So this is the stepwise thing that we're going to do now. So I'll take, I'll get you two blokes to vote on this until we get to some sort of consensus. I'm going to start off with 50-50 that laser therapy helps, um, laser therapy helps diabetic foot ulcers. Now, do you guys reckon it's more likely than 50% or less likely? And how confident are you? I would say more likely, more likely, but not that confident. <laughs> Uh, so, so you 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 think it's more likely than fifty percent that laser therapy helps? Yep. Yep. You okay with that, Ian? Because this is not my paper. Uh, yeah. I don't know this area. It's it's not uh, really mine. Um. So I'm going to go with Craig. Yep. Yeah. Right, <laughs> let's go more. I'm, I'm more, but I'm very very unconfident. <laughs> All right. So now we have to shift it up to point seven five. Yeah. So do you reckon it's more than point seven five or less than point seven five, or you say, look, I'm going to have to stop there. I yeah, can't guess I'll anymore. Stop. Stop there. Yep. Right, yeah, so stick, we say I'll that stick as well. Okay, so we're saying that there's a seventy-five percent chance that this thing is real, knowing nothing else about it, and we've got sixteen people in each sample. So what we can then say is that the false positive risk is there's ten percent chance, even if your p-value is 0.05, that that is a false positive result. Mm-hmm. Now, usually in our caper, when you know, extraordinary evidence comes out, it needs, uh, sorry, an extraordinary claim comes out, you need extraordinary evidence. Oftentimes when these things are much less likely, and let's say it was only 10% likely, then the false positive risk, even though the p-value is 0.05, p equals 0.05, that's 75% chance that that's a false positive. So the other way for you to flip this around is, You'd have to believe if you say that that's if you think that that's likely, we've got to figure out. Let's say point nine. We're probably going to get close. Point uh, eight five. Okay, that's close enough. For this to be real, with an effect size of point five, a sample of sixteen, you would have had to have believed that that was an eighty-five percent chance that it was real to end up with a, a false positive risk of basically 5% more or less. Mm. So you'd had to come to the table saying, look, I'm 85% sure this thing works for that study to have come 
amount and you can you know plug your stuff into this calculator and figure out what the false positive risk score you can go around the other way you can use it an easy way to do it is to calculate the prior for a given false positive risk and a p value so deserve p value false positive risk number in each sample i mean it feels like everything has come back to the importance of of even coal-faced clinicians understanding effect sizes better do you is there is there a is there a, a gem of a paper you can you can guide people to on that, or a chapter in a book, or where would you suggest someone who who perhaps is listening to this and they've never even heard of an effect size before? Where would you right. send them to start their their self directed reading? Um, so reading's hard. <laughs> start here. <laughs> play, play play with um, this interactive one just here that I'm just going to send you to, and again, it's the the wonderful. Christopher Magnuson, I don't know this bloke, you know, he doesn't, I don't know him beers or anything, but he's made these lovely interactive um, graphs here. So this one in particular is a nice way to interpret Cohen's D, the effect size with an interactive visualization and you can change the size of Cohen's D. So we'll go up to a, you know, a medium effect size. And then it has a whole bunch of different things underneath here that are useful for you. So let's say we saw a Cohen's D of um, 0.5. What's the chance? Well, it's about a 63% chance that this treatment is superior to that treatment. Um, this Cohen's U3 is actually, um, uh, it's not a bad stat, but people don't report it terribly much. But it says, look, 69% in the treatment group 69% in this treatment group are going to have a higher score than the people in the comparison cohort. So if I did this compared to that with an effect size of that big, 69% of them are better than the guys that you were comparing this to. And in this case, we're comparing it to no effect whatsoever. So that still means about 30% of them are going to be worse off. So that's a nice way for you to get a handle around, okay, well, now tell me about what this treatment is. Is it, it costs me $100 a throw and I need to do 12 of these. Now I need to be able to sell that to the patient that looks seven times out of 10 when I do this to people, they actually have an effect. That it actually works. Three times out of 10, it doesn't. Do you still want to plonk your cash down for that? Um, another way to look at it, which often gets published, which I find a little bit harder to explain to patients is I'd need to treat six people to get one of them better with it like that. And the percent overlap is about 80%. But you can play around with this effect size, drop it in there for the study that you've just seen. And, you know, again, this is why I'm saying maybe the, um, the small effect size that people are saying, look, forget about p-values, just go for an 0.2. Jeez, 0.2, 92% of the groups overlap. We've only got 57% of our treatment group is better than the other group. We're only 55% sure that this is better than the other one. And we need to do this for 16 or 17 people before we can say that's better. How many of these conditions do you see? How many would you be willing to do? And, you know, 15 of those, we're not going to make any difference. But you then got to weigh it up. Is this curing someone's cancer? Well, somebody with cancer might say, I'll take those odds. If this is... Oh, I have a little bit of a pain in my foot every so often and it doesn't bother me terribly much. Well, I don't know that that's a big sell, but it's going to come down to the patient in front of you. And if, you, if you're into that, then there's a whole bunch of papers that these guys point to. But look, honestly, I know your main job is being a podiatrist and you don't want to be spending hours on this and I'm with you on that. 
this is just nerds like me who mm-hmm. don't look at pornography. This is the kind of stuff I look at. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what would be worse. Um, so, you know, we're getting into the realms of, uh, of numbers needed to treat. And another um, anagram that, that people often see is the MCID, the minimal, minimal clinically important difference. And given that yep. we, we know we're trying to keep this as clinically applicable as possible, um, could you just give it? I know we're, we're pressed for time, but just to yeah, wrap yeah. up, just just close up on that. Yeah, look, the the guts of the MCID is essentially it's the noise um, plus the amount that matters to the patient. So, um, uh, so let's have a quick. The amount matters to the patient, to you, to you know whoever it is uh, that we actually care about in this regard. Um, so we, we talked a little bit before, maybe this is because we're in a bit of a rush here. We've done some study and we saw some change and that study might be made up of a real amount and amount of noise. Um, and so what we need to figure out is this amount that's noise and this amount that's real. How big is that bar? How far does this arrow have to get before the patient, the clinician, the government, government, the whatever, says, yep, that's fair enough. So we were talking a little bit before about our um, our case of, let's go back to the pain example, because that's a common one that people often grok. Uh, so if we jump now to... Ba, 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 ba. I don't get to show you my Gracely study, which is a real shame, but that can be for another day. Um, where was that? Where have I done here? Apologies, guys. Ah, oh, yeah, here was our pain study. Right, so this is where we need to be. So let's say we said that um, for the moment, let's just presume that um, this pain scale is exactly perfect. There's no noise in it whatsoever. So then we'd have to say, well, look, for somebody with a baseline pain of four, so that's the diamonds on here, these guys say to be minimally improved, they want to be one out of ten. Now, do we think minimally improved, much improved, or very much improved is what we need to be at the end of this study, given whatever the intervention is? You know, dry needling, having an operation, being given a, um, a pamphlet. And with all of those different kinds of treatments, you might say, look, to go to all the trouble of having an operation, I want to be very much improved. If my pain starts off at 4 out of 10, then I need to at least be 3 out of 10 better before I'll say I'm very much improved. My pain starts off at 9 out of 10, you better be making me 7 out of 10 better, so drop down to about 2. So that's how much matters to the patient for very much improved, for much improved or minimally improved. So that's one part of the change that we've got to have. And then we have to say how much noise is there in this measurement thing here. So somebody would have to do the study of keeping people's pain levels exactly the same somehow, test them at one time, test them at another time, and find out how much noise there is. Let's say for argument's sake that that amount of noise was 1 out of 10. So now we've said, We're doing a study on people whose baseline pain is 5 out of 10. So that's the square boxes here. And we went and asked all the patients and all the governments, and they said, look, for this intervention, they need to be much improved. So we've got to make them 3.5 out of 10 better. 
but there could be one out of ten noise. So now we have to get over the hurdle of three and a half plus one is four and a half out of ten for these people whose pain starts off at five out of ten before we can say this treatment was worthwhile. So that would be our minimum clinically important difference for that treatment. So the, the amount that matters to the patient, so you've got to get the patient front and centre and the clinician and how much noise is there in the measurement. So back to our strength example, when there's 20% noise in the measurement and then you'd have to get out of the coach or the, the athlete or the whatever, how much of a change would you have to see before you'd say this training program is worthwhile? Usain Bolt might say 0.1 of 1%. I might say 20%. So there's 20% noise in that test plus 20%. You've got to get me 40% better before it actually matters. Uh, and that's an important one for us to get across to to people because that puts the clinicians back front and centre because clinicians are the best people to say, hey, look, this intervention you're talking about, having an operation on your foot or putting an orthotic in or telling people wear this shoe versus that shoe when the person was going to go and buy a shoe anyway, they all have different downsides and then you've got to weigh it up in terms of um, the relative upside to the two of them. Perfect. Craig, I know you're, yeah. you're always worrying about time. Have we got time for one more question? Yeah, yeah, one, no, more keep, comment, keep, one more keep, comment, more. One more, yeah. It's from, At it, 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 it's from Atoll, Rod, you'll be pleased to hear. And he said, while we're talking about sort of statistical probabilities, there's even money that you are delivering this talk wearing a pair of board shorts. Athol's <laughs> 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 a better Athol's a better gambler than he is a podiatrist. Let me tell you that. <laughs> oh, unless, unless there are uh, unless there are any question, questions come no. through, Craig, I think we can wrap up there. No, I don't sure. think that can no, seeing I... Rod's legs is that's it. That. For the night now. Yeah. No, I think on Control that note, yourself, Ian. I think on that note, we've had we've had a lot of people watching. A lot of people have joined this late. So those of you who have joined late, um, in about ten fifteen minutes, hopefully Facebook has rendered this video and you can replay it. I will put it up on YouTube later on today, um, and then the podcast version will be available. So so thanks thanks so much, Rod. It's been a really good. It's it's gone well over an hour. And um, oh, thanks, shit. mate. 